Job 40, 1-14 The Lord answered Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. Then Job answered the Lord, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not reply. Twice, but now I can add nothing. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and splendor. Hey, church family. And clothe Pastor yourself Aaron with here. honor and glory. Uh, excited to Pour out your uh, teach raging the book anger. of Job today. We're Look, on a home on stretch with the book of Job. Him. Just our last couple on of teachings from this uh, really the where engaging, they challenging them together book in of the, the Old Testament. Imprison and them uh, in the grave. just by way of a quick announcement I for me personally, I'm going to take right uh, a handful of weeks you. out of the pulpit uh, after we're done with Job, and we're going to be jumping into the New Testament book of Acts, and we'll be in the book of Acts for pretty much the next school year with some breaks here and there for Advent and for the season leading up to Easter. Really excited to jump into Acts, and I'm really grateful for an opportunity to get uh, just a little bit of, of a break out of the pulpit. We're going to have some of our own elders do a few of the teachings. I'm also really excited that uh, we're going to have one guest preacher, my good friend Rabbi Matt. He's going to tackle uh, chapter 2 and the subject of Pentecost and uh, from the Jewish perspective of what that feast means and how we, uh, you know, Gentile believers uh, like, like me and like many of you uh, can understand even deeper significance and meaning from Acts chapter 2. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm really thankful for uh, good friends as well as for faithful elders. Uh, so I can take a little bit of a break uh, out of the pulpit for a few weeks and recharge the batteries and uh, excited for the book of Acts. So today... We are going to be in Job chapter 38 through the beginning of chapter 42. So if you have your Bibles, you want to try to follow along. We've got lots to cover. We need God uh, to do what he is going to do. Otherwise, none of this, uh, none of this works. So let's pray. Lord, I desperately need your help to communicate uh, what it is in your word, the truth from your word, Lord, that you've put onto my heart. And we all need your help, Holy Spirit, to have soft and receptive and teachable hearts that we might, uh, that we might behold just beautiful things from your word. And so would you help me to teach today? Would you guard my words and, and guard my lips? And would you give all of us receptive hearts that we might walk a life of deeper trust in you? I pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. So you might remember last week, we really, we really highlighted this idea that Job, what Job wants more than anything else is he wants a face-to-face -face meeting with God. Is there a mediator? Is there an arbitrator? Is there a, is there a go-between? Is there some sort of an advocate who could help set up a meeting with God? Because I don't know exactly why I'm suffering, and I'm pretty convinced that he is not being fair to me. God, re Job really wants a meeting with God. And so then in chapter 38, God shows up. 
Wow, 37 chapters, we've been having conversations and back and forth. And and finally, the thing that Job wants most of all, but also the thing that Job fears most of all happens. God shows up and he has a long face-to-face discussion with Job. And and the question is, what will he say and what will he be like? And we, we read then in Job chapter 38, the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. As, as Elihu has been talking, it says there's been a, a whirlwind building. And he said, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, will you inform me? Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who fixed its dimensions. Certainly you know. Now, many modern readers struggle with this section of the book of Job, God's response for two primary reasons. First of all, As you're going to read through in these next few chapters, it sounds like God does not answer the questions that Job has been asking. And number two, many modern readers struggle because these words sound like the tone of it seems to be really strident, uh, caustic, intense, even sarcastic and dismissive. Uh, Tremper Longman and John Walton in their, in their book, How to Read Job, they, they summarize the problem this way. They say, it's particularly common for readers to feel disappointed with the speeches of God. And they sound to some readers like deflection, a power play in which the real issues are set aside while God simply overwhelms and intimidates Job. In fact, it is not uncommon to hear that the answer in the book of Job is, I am God and you are not. I I saw that in several commentaries that I read. Well, God just shows up and puts Job in his place. This generally has an implied compliment, so just shut up. Mind your own business. I can do what I want, or you are worthless. Friends, I don't think that we have to read God's answer in the book of Job that way. In fact, I am convinced that we are not supposed to read the book of Job this way. So the big question that we need to answer today is how should we understand God's response to Job? And there's three keys, kind of two introductory keys and then the third final key that we'll understand. The two uh, introductory keys is God's personal response, his personal involvement, and number two, his parental care, which then will lead us to the third interpretive key or really the substance of what God says, which is his profound wisdom. Personal involvement, parental care, profound wisdom. First, his personal involvement. Eleanor Stump is a scholar who has written a massive work. I I just was introduced to it about a week ago. I wish I had known about it earlier. She's written a massive work on the idea of understanding suffering. And in that book, she has a big section on the book of Job. She's a, a, a Catholic scholar. Uh, University of St. Louis, I believe. And in this book, she, she, she has a couple of pretty uh, insightful observations. And so she says this about God's personal involvement. She says, one way to think about the story of Job here is to notice that Job has the longest face-to-face conversation with God of any character anywhere in the biblical stories ever. If you leave that out, it's harder to understand what's going on in Job. 
people have conversations with God and, and even like Moses, kind of the, 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 the standard bearer for close personal relationship with God. Uh, this is the longest recorded conversation between God and any human being. And that ought to strike us. That, 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 is, um, that is not inconsequential that God would devote this much time to this individual, Job. Uh, it's also important to note that in Job 38.1, it says, then the Lord answered Job. And you might notice in your, in your printings or in your app, whatever you're looking at, you might notice that L-O-R-D is all in capitals. And what does that mean? In the Old Testament, when you see L-O-R-D in all capitals, it means that it is the personal covenantal name of Yahweh. This is not just generic Elohim, God, or, or El Shaddai, the powerful one. This is the relational name of God. It's the first time we have seen that name of God used since all the way back in chapter two. The friends don't use that name. And we should note too that it's a face-to-face conversation, in, in, a, in a few chapters at the end, 42 verse 5, Job is going to have this profound response to God in which he says, I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Uh, the Hebrew idiom there is, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye has seen you. It's like Job is saying, you know, I've, I've understood things about you, but now I have experienced you relationally. And, and one of the things I think is really interesting to consider is in verse 3, God says, get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. The old King James Version actually translates it more literally. It says, gird up thy loins like a man. The idea here is, you know, in the ancient world, men would wear robes, but when it was time to do something uh, more active, wrestling or fighting, you would take your belt and you would tuck it up in between your legs and you'd tuck the, the robe into your belt and you almost make like a makeshift pair of pants. You gird up your loins. And this is interesting because it is dignifying. This is not God just blustering or intimidating. This is God inviting someone into a wrestling match. This is God, uh, you know, dignifying himself. Okay, you want to do it? You want to go toe-to-toe? Let's talk. Let's wrestle. Let's go. You got big questions. I got some big things to say to you as well. There is, we don't need to read it as a, as a, you know, thumb crushing Job down. We can actually read it in a way of him calling him out. Derek Rishmawe is a scholar and a, 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 a college pastor. And he wrote an article, a link to it on the church's website. He says this, sometimes the only way to correct a person who believes nobody cares about him is to be indignant at the insulting suggestion causing him to see how misguided that belief really is. This is the, here's the phrase, the dignifying tenderness of God's forceful rebuke. He deals with Job as someone who merits his care and attention. As someone who, though small and confused, is deeply loved by the Lord of heaven and earth. There's this, there is intensity in the response. Like, make no mistake, it is definitely a, hey, you know, kind of a grab you by the shoulders and shake you sort of a thing. 
but it's not a grab you by the shoulders and shake you so that you can go cower in a corner. It's God grabbing Job by the shoulders and shaking him and saying, let's dance. Gird up thy loins. Let's wrestle. You want to talk? Let's go. And I see it. And Derek Rishmawi and, and, and even Christopher Ash and some of the things in his commentary that he wrote about sees it as this beautiful personal invitation. Eleanor Stump, it's this invitation into a long face-to-face personal discussion with God. So that ought to be one of our interpretive keys. Second, God's parental care. Personal invitation, parental care. And there are clues, oh my goodness, so many textual clues littered throughout uh, chapters 38 through 41. You know, like in in verse four, he starts the question, he goes, where were you when I established the earth? Skip down to verse seven when it says, when all the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And you might remember that that sons of God language is about the heavenly host. It's about the, the uh, spiritual beings that, that God has as, yes, rulers, but that sons of God language shows that there's a parental relationship, a family type of relationship. But it goes on, verse 8, who enclosed the sea, God asked, behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and total darkness its blanket. It's like God's saying like, you know, when, when the ocean was born, when it burst forth from the womb, I wrapped it up and I swaddled it in blankets. If you go a little bit further down in, in chapter 38 into like verse 28, does the rain have a father? Who fathered the drops of the dew? What's the implied answer? Whose womb did the ice come from? Who gave birth to the frosts of heaven? There's all this father and mother parental sort of language that God is employing uh, to say, like, I'm the one who created all of this stuff. You go on later into Job chapter 38. It talks about, can you lead the bear, the, the constellation of, of Ursa? Can you lead the bear and her cubs? And then you go on later, it, it talks about, you know, the lion and hunting with her cubs and ravens feeding her baby birds. And chapter 39, the goats and the mountain goats and the deer are, are giving birth and they're in labor and the, the, the ostrich, the mother ostrich with her legs. Like there's so much parental language. Maybe one of my favorite verses in the entirety of the book of Job, when God talks about Leviathan, and we're going to spend a little bit more time on Leviathan in just a minute, this, this giant terrifying sea monster, he says, can you play with the Leviathan like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? And as a dad of girls, I loved that verse. It's just the idea of like, hey, kids, I'm home. I brought you a new pet. Oh, daddy, what is it? It's a Leviathan. Here, it's on a leash. You know, go play with it in the backyard. You know, I know he sinks ships and has breathes fire and stuff, but don't worry. Just, you know, play with, play with your Leviathan. The, the whole point I'm trying to say here is that these chapters are riddled with parental language. Eleanor Stump again says this, it is a mistake then to characterize God's speeches to Job as demonstrating nothing but God's power over creation. The speeches certainly do show God's power, but equally importantly, they show God as a parent with his creatures. 
from the sea and the rain to the raven and the donkey and even the monstrous behemoth and Leviathan. He brings them out of the womb, swaddles, feeds, and guides them, and even plays with them. More importantly, he talks to them. And somehow, in some sense or the other, they talk to him in return. These speeches show God as more than powerful. They show him as engaged with his whole creation. And they portray him as having a parental care toward all his creatures, even the inanimate ones. Friends, when you, when you remember this, when you, when you use this as an interpretive key— This changes the tone of the conversation. This is not a drill sergeant berating a new recruit in boot camp. This is a somewhat intense father-son chat. This is a dad who is sitting down with his coming-of-age young man saying, okay, you got big questions for me? Let's talk. Let me take you on a tour. Let me, let me show you, you know, how to pay bills. Let me show you how to pay taxes. Let me show you how to go to work. Let me show you how to fix a car. Let me show you how to fix a hot water heater. Let me show you how to, how to you know, budget, how to save. Like, this is kind of an intense sort of conversation between a parent and a child. And those of you who are parents know that there are times where you have a conversation with your child. Obviously, there are times where we can, we can be sinful towards our children with losing our tempers or whatever. But I'm talking about those good moments of a fairly intense conversation that still comes from a place of love. That's what's going on here. So, so the, the personal dignifying nature of it, the parental love and care leads us to the third interpretive key, which is about the content of what God says, and it's his profound wisdom. There's two speeches God gives speech one, Joe has a little bit of a response. God gives speech number two, and then there's a bigger, fuller response. But throughout the speeches that God makes, people ask this question, does he really answer the question that Job is asking? And the answer to that is yes and no. No, in the sense that God does not give Job a specific answer as to why he is suffered so much, why he has suffered so much, but he does answer the question, how does God govern the universe? You might remember that we've, we've addressed this a number of times that, that this idea of the retribution principle, you do good things, you get good things. You do bad things, you get bad things. That is true to a certain extent, but that is not the entirety of what is going on in the world. That chapter 28 showed us at the middle of the book of Job that it is God's wisdom that he uses to uphold and govern the universe. Back in, back in chapter 38, verse 2, who is this who obscures my counsel? Who is this that darkens my counsel with ignorant words? That counsel is a term of governance. You think of like a, a, a president with the cabinet or a king with his court, and they, they, they talk about things. It's counsel. It's, it's how is God governing the universe? So in chapter 38, God does, the the Bible project guys call it, God takes him on a cosmic tour of the universe. 
And he starts out with nature. And you can read this. I want to encourage you to read this. We've already heard some of these verses about the, you know, the, the sea uh, and clouds and darkness and land and water and there's rain and hail and snow and desert and frost and oxen and goat and ravens and ostriches. It's this, it's this whole thing. It's not just, do you understand what the water cycle is, but could you actually make the water cycle work, Job? It's that kind of stuff. And he goes not just from the terrestrial realm, but he goes up into the, the realm of, of what we would call outer space, the, the heavenlies. In, in verse 31, can you fasten the chains of the Pleiades, a constellation? Can you loosen the belt of Orion? Can you bring out the constellations in their season and lead the bear and her cubs? That's a, a reference to Ursa Major. Do you know the laws of heaven and can you impose its authority on the earth? And friends, in the thousands of years since the book of Job was written, all of our scientific discoveries should lead us to even more just intense humility when we consider God's governance over nature and outer space. This last week, I was watching a documentary on Jupiter. I'm most, I can say that pretty much every Sunday. In the last week, I have watched a documentary about Jupiter. Jupiter is my second favorite planet. And people always ask me, well, what's your first favorite planet? That's a dumb question. Earth, we live here. It is my first favorite planet. But Jupiter is my second favorite planet. And I was in this documentary, they were talking about the moons of Jupiter, that Jupiter has, that we know of, 79 moons. One of the moons, Ganymede, is actually bigger than the planet Mercury. So Jupiter has a moon that is bigger than one of the, the planets. And they were talking about how because of all these, these moons and because of the massive size of Jupiter, that we here on planet Earth, we owe uh, a lot of thanks to Jupiter because its gravitational pull sucks out a lot of the asteroids uh, that would otherwise come crash into Earth. It pulls it in. That, that Ganymede and some of these other planets are just riddled with, with uh, crater you know, craters and stuff from being smashed to smithereens. And so thank you, Jupiter. Like, I don't understand how all that works. Here I am just living my life, trying to figure out if there's a restaurant that is open for seating, uh, you know, and where am I, where did I put my mask? I'm trying to figure out those things. Meanwhile, up in outer space, Jupiter is pulling in asteroids so that we don't die. That's cool. I can't do that. Maybe I ought to have a little bit more humility before I judge God on how he runs things. I, I read a, an article too from, I think it was from University of Nottingham where they talk about how average galaxy has 100 billion stars in it. And the best guess that scientists have right now is that there's probably 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. That's insane. That's just beyond our comprehension. And so Job's first response comes in chapter 40, verse 4. Well, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord. Now, <laughs> I hear this in a particular tone. This is how I hear it. I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I'll just be quiet. I've spoken once. I will not reply twice, but now I can add nothing. You almost hear it like Job, kind of like a teenager, maybe sitting with, with dad. Okay, dad, I don't know how to fix a car. I don't know how to do a budget. I don't know how to pay taxes. You're so much smarter than me. I get it. Like, that's how I hear it. Maybe that's wrong. Um, he's, he's got a little bit of it right. Yes, I am compared to you. You're very powerful. But we know 
that this answer is insufficient for two reasons. Number one, God goes, no, we're not done. I've got more to say. (laughs) And number two, in a minute, when we see the next response, you're going to see that it's quite a bit different. So God goes on. God goes on. He goes, okay, I'm not done. Dress for action again, like a man, get ready. We're going to rumble one more time. There's still more for me to teach you. And he starts by talking about uh, you, Job. Maybe you could be God for a day. Adorn yourself with majesty and splendor. Clothe yourself with honor and glory. Pour out all your raging anger. Look on every proud person and humiliate him. Look on every proud person and humble him. Trample the wicked where they stand. You do it, Job. You got all these problems with the wicked. You got all these issues with me, you know, letting bad people get away with stuff for too long. Why don't you be God for the day? You hide them in the dust. You imprison them in the grave. And then, Job, I will confess to you that your own right hand can deliver you. So once again, right there, we see that God goes right after Job's self-righteousness. I can deliver myself. I can be good on my own. God, you owe me because of my righteousness. And then the strangest thing happens. God spends a significant portion of his speech talking about two very unusual animals. The first one is the behemoth. This is in verse 15 through the end of chapter 40. Look at the behemoth, which I made along with you. And it talks about how he's like strong and immovable. He's got like a, you know, muscles, even in his belly. His, his tail is like thick and strong, like a cedar tree. His bones are bronze tubes. His limbs are like iron rods. Like, like this is one tough beast. And he lives on the land. And it says he's hungry. It talks multiple times about his, his hunger, like he, he eats grass like a cattle and, and the hills are, hills are yielding food for him like all the time. And he's just kind of everywhere. Like he's always there. He's, he's in the hills, but he's under the lotus plant. He's in the marshy reeds. He's down by the willows of the brook and he's by the rivers. And no matter what you do, nobody can take him out. This behemoth is, is strong, always there and really hungry. And then Leviathan, Like the entirety of chapter 41, the entire, an entire chapter of the Bible is a poem about a, a sea beast. He's fearsome. Nobody can tame him. Uh, Even, even it says that the mighty ones, which is a, actually the Hebrew word is Elohim. Even the Elohim, the angels, the supernatural beings are afraid of this thing. He is really terrifying and he's painful. There's, there's sharp teeth and there's sharp scales and fire comes out of his mouth and he's prideful. It says he has a really hard heart. And the last verse in chapter 41 says he is the king over all the proud beasts. Uh, the, the actual language here is the sons of pride. And is it strange to you that God spends all this time talking about these two beasts? Now, much ink has been spilled 
on the identification of the, the behemoth and the Leviathan, I do find it very interesting, something I had never thought about before, that it's a beast from the land and a beast from the sea. And we see this coupling in other places as well, don't we? Particularly in the book of Revelation. I believe it's in chapter 13, the beast from the land and the beast from the sea. That John, the revelator, may have been drawing from the book of Job in that prophetic vision. Now, some people have taken a view of the behemoth and Leviathan that they are strictly zoological. In fact, that that the behemoth is probably a a hippopotamus or maybe an elephant, or uh, that the the Leviathan is maybe a crocodile or a whale. The, The problem with that is that the descriptions, they don't neatly fit. Like the, the, the hippopotamus does not have a tail like a cedar tree. It's kind of a wussy tail. Or, uh, you know, elephants up at the top of the hills. Or the leviathan, you know, maybe it's a crocodile. Well, except for crocodiles don't live in the bottom of the sea and shoot fire out of their mouth. So, so then others have come along and said, well, these are just mythological creatures. These are pure fantasy. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's um, uh, particularly for critics, oh, it's just remnants of a bygone age that found their way into the Bible. And, and the problem with, with that is, well, no, there, it seems like there's something being communicated here that's more than just mythology. And I've, I've, I stumbled across a word this week that I really like. It's, it's the word mythopoetic. That these beasts are kind of larger than life. And maybe they're not strictly real in the sense of how we would say like, yes, we've, we've categorized these according to the rules of science, but there's something in the shared imagination of the people of the age. I have a great example for us. Bigfoot. Now, is Bigfoot real? No. Yes. I mean, Bigfoot, you know, okay. You guys, I can sense uh, fights happening this week in community group. Bigfoot is something that, you know, according to the, the strict rules of science, we've never cop- captured one, categorized, tagged, all that sort of stuff. But I say Bigfoot, and yeah, you know what we're talking about. I actually just saw a guy yesterday wearing a shirt that, you know, Bigfoot, hide and seek champion of all time. Like it communicates something about, you know, secrecy or whatever. Or actually for us Seattleites, the Kraken. The, the, the mythological beast from the sea, right? It's, it's things like that. And they're, they're communicating something very theological. And you guys, we have to understand that it's communicating something theological because Job's about to have an undoing and a repenting. Like these poems about the behemoth and Leviathan deeply moved Job. So we're not just talking about some animals. We're talking about something that goes beyond that. And, and, and this is my best attempt at, at understanding what they represent. The behemoth represents, think about this, unyielding and strong, everywhere and always hungry, never satisfied. The book of Proverbs says that one of the things that is never satisfied, no matter how much it eats, is death and the grave. Robert Feil has written a big book about the imagery of evil, and he has argued, I think convincingly, that the behemoth has uh, textual connections to the Canaanite deity known as Mot, who is the Canaanite god of death. Behemoth represents death. Death is always there. It's, it's, you can't move it, you can't budget it, it just is going to be there, and it's always hungry and unsatisfied. Leviathan is untamable, wild, 
lurking, sharp, and painful. And Leviathan, we have quite a bit of extra biblical uh, uh, archaeological sources from the, the world of the ancient Near East. And the Leviathan very clearly represents the forces of evil and chaos. That the waters are churning and, and, and you just, you don't know where it's going to come. It's very frightful and, and you can't do anything about it. It's evil and chaos. And what God is saying is that I have the power over even death and the chaos of evil. Chapter 40, verse 19, he says about the behemoth, only his maker can draw the sword against him. And in chapter 41, verses 10 and 11, God says, no one is ferocious enough to rouse Leviathan. Who then can stand against me? By implication, God is saying, I can deal with Leviathan. God is saying that even death itself and all of the pain and the chaos that comes from evil, are, they're on a leash and I have a plan to deal with both. And something in that, when, when God comes against Job's self-righteousness, there's a humbling and then God says that even death and evil are under my control and I'm, I'm working it out. And something in this speech, I know that it maybe doesn't communicate it that way to us, but that's because we aren't ancient Near Easterners. But whatever it is, it gets to Job. However specifically it works, we don't fully understand, but it works. Because then in chapter 42, Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke of things too wondrous for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. When, when I question you, you will inform me. I had heard reports about you. I'd heard you with the hearing of the ear, but now I have seen you with my eyes. Therefore, I reject my words. I am sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. Now, this is a response. This is a response. He confesses that God is truly in charge of all things. And he confesses, God, I have, I have been in the wrong. I have spoken wrongly about you. And we have to see in Job's story, Job did not suffer because he had sinned, but in his suffering, he did sin. That's what he's repenting for. He is repenting for judging God and criticizing God and questioning God and saying, God, I could do a better job of running things. But then it's not just that he repents in dust and ashes, but he confesses, Lord, we now have face-to-face -face relationship, covenantal relationship, personal relationship. Friends, this is like a, a portrait of Job moving from a religious, self-righteous, motivated relationship with God. I, I believe it was genuine, but he comes to a deeper understanding of God's love and care for him, and Job is forever changed. And friends, Job is all of us, isn't he? Every single one of us, at one time or another, has, has thought that we know better how to run the universe. 
Humanity was, was created. Adam and Eve were created to rule in partnership with God. But in Genesis chapter three, when they took of the fruit and they ate from it, what they were confessing is, God, we think that we know how to rule this garden better than you. And every single human being since the garden has done the exact same thing, taken matters into our own hands. Thank you, God, but I want to live life on my own terms. And I've been arguing today for a reading of this section of Job, really the whole book of Job, through the lens of God's kindness. It is an intense kindness, but it is kindness nonetheless. This is a loving father who shows up to talk to his wandering, floundering teenage son, if I can use that analogy, to set him straight. And friends, this is what God does for every single one of us. The, the, the book of Romans says that God is righteously angry about how we have defied his rule over the created order. But Romans chapter two, verse four also says that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And what God has done for Job here in the intense loving kindness, he has now done for us in the ultimate sense through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. See, friends, God reveals himself as a father to Job. And, and Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty seven that he came to reveal the father to those who would trust in him. Jesus has come to, in the ultimate sense, reveal us, reveal to us God the father. And here we see in, in Job that God gets personally involved in relationship and face-to-face relationship with Job. And the book of John tells us that in Jesus, the word God became flesh and dwelt among us. And he lived a perfect life and he, he died a sacrificial death and he rose again on the third day personally in the presence of his, his friends and his disciples and even his enemies to say that salvation and new life is now available through what he has done. And, and here we see God saying that, that he can defeat these, these monsters, the, the beast from the land and the beast from the sea, that, that God can defeat death and God can defeat evil. And friends, what did Jesus do on the cross but defeat these forces of sin and death? Like it says in 1 Corinthians 15, he has defeated death through his death. And then God says, I want you to trust my wisdom in how I am ruling the universe. And the author of Hebrews tells us in, in one of my favorite verses to quote, Hebrews 1, 3, that he, now Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Friends, everything that we see in God's response to Job foreshadows what we now have ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so here's, here's our response Here's our only response. Here's our only hope. Like Job, it is a posture of humble trust, a lowering of ourselves and an entrusting ourselves to God. We might use the more classic words of repentance and faith. And if anyone is listening to me today, your right relationship with God must start it can only start with first a lowering of oneself. God, I am sorry 
for thinking that I could run the universe, thinking I could even run my own life on my own terms better than you. And, 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 then, and then saying, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to entrust myself to you. I'm going to put my faith in you. And, and friends, even when you don't understand, listen, you don't need to understand how a particular medicine works. You just need to take the medicine if you're sick. You don't need to understand, you know, the different theories of the atonement. Well, is it satisfaction theory of atonement or ransom theory of atonement? Is this Christus Victor or penal substitutionary atonement? Like, we don't need to understand the exact mechanisms of how uh, salvation works and how the atonement works. We just need to know that it works. Jesus died, his blood cleanses me, I have forgiveness, I'm going to put my trust in Jesus. And then once you have done that, for those of you who have already taken that first step, we now enter into a lifestyle of lowering ourselves and trusting in God. You are God, I am not. I'm so glad to have right relationship with you, face-to-face relationship with you, so help me to trust you. And friends, this is where the rubber really meets the road. You know, for some things in life, we do get straightforward answers. But even for those things in life that seem to have a straightforward answer, if you keep digging and you keep digging, at some point you're going to run into something that there just isn't a good answer for. You know, why why did so-and-so die of lung cancer? Well, they smoked cigarettes every single day. Okay, well then, but why do, why do I know other people who've smoked a pack a day for 50 years and never got lung cancer? And, and why do we live in the kind of society that has, you know, over the years glorified cigarette smoking? And why did, why did my loved one have that friend who gave them their first cigarette when they were a teenager? Like at some point, it's like, ah, it's this painful thing. And, and even if there's kind of a clear answer to it, at some point there's, there's questions. And friends, I believe that the book of Job is trying to tell us something very simple, but something very difficult, and it's this. We don't always get the specific answers to the specific questions that we have. But what God offers us is even better, close, personal presence and relationship. We're so conditioned in our Western, you know, post-enlightenment culture to expect a rational answer for everything. And then when something happens, it's like we're, it's like we're trying to do long division and we're frustrated that there's a remainder. Friends, the world does not work according to the strict principles of logic and reason and ration. In fact, in fact, evil itself is just absurd. Wickedness and evil itself is irrational. It doesn't make sense. And we don't fully understand why God has, in his sovereignty, allowed us to now live and exist in a world that is so broken, but we know that he offers us himself. And the way that we access him is through lowering of ourselves and a simple trust. God, I, I think that I want the answers, but I, I think that you're telling me that even if I got all the answers, maybe that, that's not actually what I want and need. I think that's the message of the book of Job. Our only hope is a posture of humble trust in God's wisdom. You know, at the beginning, I, I quoted John Walton and Tremper Longman about this whole, you know, we hear it like, well, just shut up, mind your own business. I can do what I want. But I left off one sentence from that quote and they say this, a preferable understanding would be, I am God, 
the supremely wise and powerful. So I want you to trust me even when you don't understand. Lord, I pray right now in the places in our lives that we we just don't understand whether it's big picture things like the political fracturing and racial tensions and, and coronavirus, or whether it's the smaller, simple things, you know, relational difficulties, parenting difficulties, health issues, individual, uh, just uh, depression. God, so many things in this life that we don't understand. And Lord, we cry out that we would not seek after answers as much as we would just seek after your presence your face-to-face goodness, your relationship with us, that in the person of Jesus Christ, that you, Lord God, who have experienced all of the suffering that this world has to offer. So help us to trust you, even when we don't understand. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.